Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller. And I'm Ben Schumann Solar. Hi, Ben. It's good to see What's you. What's up? I've missed you in these past couple of episodes. I had some nice solo hosting opportunities and uh, got to do it with Phoebe, but it was not the same. So I'm really glad you're back today. That's very sweet. I'm feeling better-ish. Good. <laughs> Happy to hear it. And your kid's better too. Um, yeah, this winter for parents has been hardcore, germ-wise. Heavily, yeah. Heavily germy. So I've heard. And parents are kind of on our mind, actually, yeah. because... Well, that's that's part of what the interview is about today. Actually, it's all of what the interview is about today. But also, we have been checking out the responses that you have so kindly furnished us via the survey. And you've been telling us that one of the top topics, <laughs> the top <laughs> categories that are interesting that's interesting to you is parenting. And we were like, hang on a second, parenting. And then we also saw in the survey that Emily Oster was one of the people that you were interested in. And we thought... Wait a minute. We actually have an Emily Oster interview, right? In the can, yeah. In the can that Ben did. So today, not only is Ben back, you get to hear an interview that Ben did. Yeah. I mean, they're never as good as yours, but but uh, I'm, I'm being typecast as the dad, which I guess is what I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are, but you're also many other things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was cool. I, I was really happy to get to talk to Emily Oster. She's one of the most forwarded newsletters or newsletter authors of anybody I know in the world, to me. <laughs> to you, yes. Get, well, I think in general, I mean, in the parenting space and, and people who are interested in this kind of stuff. Mm. But um, I think you can tell in the interview why uh, people love her. She's got a really cool approach uh, to decision-making and kind of a structured approach to the whole family life and the tough things that we go through. Yeah. And that's why that's why it's uh she's she's become who she's become. Yeah. And you love a structure. So what else did you love about this interview? What did you remember about it and what should people be listening for? Well, so her book is called The Family Firm, or at least it's a it's one of sort of a trilogy of books she put out, but it's the one that she's most famous for. The Family Firm. And like it like it says, it's sort of approaching some of the decisions that are made in family life the way you might in a in a structured company setting, organizational setting. Yeah. Um, and so what I remember is that I pushed that a little bit and tried to figure out how structured is structured because mm. the obviously it's a little bit counterintuitive. Family spaces are not where people necessarily want to always bring their business uh, <laughs> selves. Yeah. And, and yet, um, they're, I mean, they're... We, you and I were joking about this earlier, but there are times in our personal lives where we wish we were as effective as we are in some professional settings. Totally. Absolutely. And I think that sometimes people think that like um, adding a professional sort of framework to uh, relational life outside of work means you're doing it wrong when that's not totally true. I guess we can talk more about it at the end because I want to get people into this interview. I mean, mostly people should listen to the advice and the space that Emily Oster gives people to do things the way they want to, but it's a helpful Mm. first step. Yeah. I also wanted to say we wanted to make sure that you knew, listeners, that we are we're listening. So you're listening to us, we're listening to you. We've been we've been looking through the results of this survey like we said we were going to because the whole point of it was to take a little bit of time, think about how we make simplify, think about what you want from simplify. And we're going to take a couple weeks, a little bit of time to make sure we understand going forward how to make this show the best it can be. So we wanted to come back and um, 
and sort of punt you some some really good interviews that we thought were timely, that we thought would be really nice for right now in this moment in the world. And now that we've we've tidied you over and also gotten some information out of you, thank you so much for that. We're going to recalibrate a little bit and then be back with more Simplify. Yeah. Thank you so much for filling out the survey. And now, now we have a good idea of how we can kind of give this thing a shot in the arm. And um, we see that people want it. We see the tens of thousands of you out there. And we yeah. want to make the best thing we can. And, and so thank you. Now we can go and do that. Yeah, exactly. And if you have not filled out the survey yet and you'd like to, we'd like you to. It is open for a couple more weeks. It'll be in the show notes of this episode and any of the last three or four episodes. So please go do that. It's been really helpful to hear from you. And yeah, without any further ado, let's let's get into it. Let's hear from you and Emily Oster. Can you please introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced? Sure. Uh, Hi, my name's Emily Oster. I'm a professor of economics at Brown University and the author of uh, books about parenting and pregnancy. Nice. So you say in the book, The Family Firm, control in family life is illusory. Why? Partly control is illusory because there are many people and because life is unpredictable. And uh, particularly as your kids, as kids get bigger and things get more complicated, we kind of have this idea that we can uh, we can kind of make it all work if we organize it enough. But, you know, there's just the inherent unpredictability of what are your kids going to be like, what are you going to be like, that makes it hard to have control even even if we'd really like to. And And so what do you think, I mean, I know this is kind of what the whole book is about, but what can we do? What we can do is we can have control over the way that we make decisions or the way that we approach things. And I think the book is really about kind of decision-making frameworks and the idea that, you know, you can't always predict what's going to happen. You can't always be sure that you made the right decision, but you can be more confident that you made the decision in the right way. Uh, And that that itself is both helpful for making better decisions, but also helpful for feeling comfortable and happy, even when those decisions actually do turn out to be wrong. Yeah. Do you think decision-making is more difficult now? I mean, we we hear a lot about this, you know, quote-unquote modern age of parenting or age of modern parenting. Is Do you think this generation is actually different from previous ones? I think there's like two things that are that are different. So one is because of a lot of the demographic shifts that particularly for certain socioeconomic groups, people are having kids later, they've already, I don't know, ac- accomplished something or done various things. And I think that leads many of us to approach our parenting in, in sort of the same way that we have approached our jobs. Like, okay, this is something I'm going to accomplish. And if you're thinking of your parenting as something to accomplish, it kind of naturally lends itself to a level of pressure that I think is different maybe than than people had put on themselves earlier. So I think that's, that's kind of one piece. Um, and I think there is also a, a piece around uh, when there's so much information and so much opportunity for people to, to sort of see what you're, see what you're doing and to, and to decide that information has led them to think their decisions are right and your decisions are wrong. You know, that may be, um, that may be different than it, uh, than it was. Although I will say that, you know, we, there's always this tendency to, to sort of paint earlier generations like with rose colored glasses and for, you know, our parents to say like, oh, I was so relaxed. But, you know, I don't know if you were really so relaxed in the moment. You know, I, <laughs> that may just be something they make up. It's the best thing about being a parent is that you have to confront your own parents 
in a lot of ways, right? Like you start yes. thinking about how did they do it, or or I wonder if I, I wonder if how they would have dealt with this decision that I'm facing right now. And for a lot of the stuff, I have to say, reading your book, also, I was quite proud of my parents. I was a little bit surprised of like how impressed I felt by them because I felt like, oh my god, all these enormous scary decisions and difficult ones, and they. You know, they had three kids, and we all came out more or less fine. And and uh, I wrote my sister, and I was like, you know, they how did they do that? They didn't. I don't think they did frameworks. We should interview mom and dad to figure out how. Like, it was it all automatic before we had books like yours? You know, I talked to my mom a lot about um, kind of how they how they parented, and I think we're in some ways very. Um, very similar, but I, she's always like, "Why do you have to write all this stuff down?" <laughs> like, what do you say? What do, like? How did those conversations actually go? I think my mother and I are very, very similar, and so when I wrote this, particularly the most recent book, she was like, yeah, "You know, this this is a good book, but like everybody already does this. Like these, like this this approach, like everyone's already doing this approach." And I was like, "No, that's just you." I think she she does do some of the kinds of stuff that I did, but I I think not in quite such a deliberate way. Um, but so why why do you think this book needs to exist right now? I mean, we talk about this generation and, and decision making. Why why this book now? In some ways, what what drew me to to write this was that I think that people and maybe this is because of some of the earlier stuff that I did, but you know, people have gotten into very sort of very into the idea that data is holding some key that you know if we are approaching our data or our parenting with data that we can make the right decisions and that that can be sort of the, the key to, to success in, in some way. Part of the point of this book in some ways is like that's not necessarily true or at least that the data is not always as good as you, as you think it is and there are sort of pieces in there that are, um, that are helpful but ultimately you need to wrap the data with some kind of, uh, some kind of approach that takes into account your values and your preferences and also accepts that there isn't a particular right answer. So this is kind of a, this book is really an acknowledgement that like decision-making should be central, as central as data. And I think people sometimes miss that. I think we're not, we're not always very deliberate with decisions we make, even when they turn out to be enormously important for our day-to-day lives. Yeah, I, I, I'm not an economics genius, but I believe, if I remember correctly, that like classic economics relies on a rational actor to some extent, right? Like uh, that that concept of the econ. Sure. Um, but like you know, like we all know, parents are pretty much the least rational thinkers most of the time. <laughs> so what? How do you protect for that? Like how do you how do you address that? So the the sense in which people are we sort of talk about people being rational is that when we think about their their preferences, you know, if someone is rational, they're going to have a set of preferences which are totally internally consistent um and reflect a like a careful weighing of cost and benefits and and kind of have all kinds of other basically mathematical features which we sort of know in the data are not not what we see that in fact people's preferences have all kinds of intransitive properties and you know people overweight some things and underweight other things and and so I think that's that's just sort of true true in the data I would say sort of two two kind of notes as it relates to the book one is that the point of this decision making is even if your preferences are totally wacky and and weird and and irrational you can still try to make good decisions based on those preferences so you can still say I'm going to sit down and think carefully about my decisions and even though my preferences are not what economists would think would be totally rational I can still make decisions that are in line with those preferences but I also think that some of being deliberate in these ways can help us make better decisions 
in cases in which the irrationality of our base nature is is going to lead us into something that we don't want to do. And, and, you know, for example, people have a strong tendency to kind of overreact to risks that are very small. And I think that's something which you can sort of fight against a little bit by being more deliberate about the way that you think about those those choices. And sometimes I think that does kind of matter for people's decisions. Your book has all these amazing specific, very relevant, <laughs> like the most tender questions. Um, but a lot of them, you were like, look, the, we don't have the best data I wish we had. Why is there such a like dearth of good data out there? You know, I think partly people don't really like to experiment with their with their parenting. And all of the choices that people make are kind of inherently bound up in in each other which is in some ways kind of the point of the point of the book but but there's very few particularly when people are thinking carefully about these choices there are actually very few of them where you can be like oh people are just making those choices randomly so when people make a choice to like you know sit down every night with their family for dinner or to uh, you know send their kid to a particular kind of school or have them watch a more or less television you know those those are really wrapped up in all together with each other, together with other characteristics. And, and I think that's part of the, the problem is we don't have a lot of scope for experimentation in most of these settings. And the world is not experimenting for us because people are making these decisions in ways that, that reflect so many other features of their, of their families. Yeah. Well, then maybe we should maybe we should dig into this a little bit, because I feel like we're speaking a little bit theoretically about the main thing of the book, which is probably the four F's. Um, can you walk us through the four F's and then we can we can try and dig through a specific example? Um, so the idea behind this sort of four F approach is to say that, you know, when you're making larger size decisions in your family, you want some kind of uh, explicit framework uh, to to make them. And so the this framework says, you know, first uh, frame the question, think carefully about the options that you're choosing between. Um, second step is is fact find, which means, you know, collect all the data. Some of that is data about, you know, impacts on your kids. Some of it is going to be literally like logistics data. Like if I'm going to make this choice, how would I make it work? Um, what else would it interact with? So you kind of get all the information. The third step is to make a decision. So to to wait to make the decision until you are ready to make the decision, but then to make it all at once and try to try to move on. Um, and then there's a fourth F, which is follow up, which suggests that people think carefully about uh, when they will have an opportunity to revisit the decision and actually explicitly plan to do so, with the idea that um, that. You know, because we can't be sure that our decisions will be will be correct, uh, we want to leave this space to acknowledge that they they might not be wrong, they might not be right, and we might want to to sort of redo them later. And that's kind of part of the decision making. So the idea is really to sort of walk through that when you are making one of these big decisions, with the hope that it improves the decision outcomes. Yeah, and that we need a framework, right? Because like the stuff we talked about a few minutes ago, as parents, you're fighting off chaos left and right. Exactly. Um, so what example do you feel like, what, what are you feeling drawn to at the moment? Um, so I actually like, I kind of like the summer camp example. Can, can we walk through like how the four F's work with summer camp? Yeah. So I often think about this in the context of, of kind of, should people, should you send your kid away to summer camp? This is like a very, you know, should your kid go away for some, for some period of time? Um, and I think it's common to, to kind of approach that as just like, 
I will tell you the way I first approached this when my daughter brought it up, which was like, absolutely not over my dead body. I will never allow you to do this. Um, but I think it is a place where people have really gut kind of gut reactions based on their, um, based on what they did. So actually when I asked my friends, one of them was like, are you kidding? I'd never send my kid away. And the other one was like, oh yeah, I went away like for eight weeks, like starting at the age of seven and like everyone has to go to summer camp and it's the most important thing for like personal development that you could do. I was like, okay, it seems different. Um, so you want to sort of start here by asking the question, which is, um, you know, like, and again, it's so the idea of him framing the question is rather than saying, you know, should my kid go to summer camp or not, to try to be a little bit more explicit about, you know, should my kid go to sleepaway camp or do this other camp? Or should they go to sleepaway camp this year or next year? Like, really try to define a smaller number of options that, like, or not is sort of too infinitely large to allow you to to sort of do that trade-off explicitly. Um, and then you want to get some data. And I think in the, you know, in the case of summer camp, there's, um, there's kind of really both this logistics piece and the data piece. I actually think the data piece is kind of, um, it's kind of interesting. So you sort of dig into like, are there any benefits or costs or whatever to, to sending your kid to, to camp? There actually are a fair, it's like a reasonable amount of data suggesting that kids can benefit from these experiences, um, for some of the same reasons that they benefit from some extracurriculars, which is that they provide a, a social environment that is distinct from the home social environment. Um, and belonging, which, you know, right? Wasn't belonging part of that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like there's a sense of belonging and, you know, particularly like, you know, and it's a lot of the work on this is done in the context of kids who sort of have specific reasons that it is difficult to feel like they belong at home. So, you know, kids who have, who are ill or have some other, you know, have some other issues, but actually like you don't have to have any specific issues to not feel like you fit in, in middle school, I assure you. Um, and so, you know, this is a, this is kind of a place that, that it's like p- kids often generate a sense of, a sense of belonging, a sense of, of kind of self that is distinct from their, um, from their home self. And, and that turns out to be really valuable for socio-emotional reasons and anxiety and stuff like that. Uh, but there's also like a big logistics piece, right? Like, okay, well, if I'm going to make let my kid go to summer, I, we need to know like where that was and how much it cost and what would it mean we couldn't pay for instead of this and how would we get them there and, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of like just details um, that, that seem like you might have the instinct to say, okay, well, let's just decide to do this and we'll kind of figure that out later. But like, you you probably can't just figure that out later. Like if your kid's going to be gone for eight weeks in the summer and it's going to cost you thousands of dollars that you like kind of want to think about that before you tell them that they can do it. Uh, and then there's a, then there's a kind of like, once you've gotten all that, then you want to sit down and make and make a decision. Um, and then there's this last piece of like follow-up, which there is really says, um, really says, you know, okay, well, there's going to come a time in the fall when you're going to have to make a decision about doing this again. Uh, and you know, if you didn't do it, there's an opportunity to think, well, do we want to do it now? And if you did do it, it's a question of, you know, do we want to do it again? Or, or, you know, was that like a nice experiment that taught us that we didn't like going to summer camp, for example? Um, one question that came up to me when I was thinking about the four F's was if I had to do the four F's, I would have added a fifth one, which would be like family friends. I can't really make a big parenting decision without talking to a sister or a friend or a parent. 
is that does that fit into the framework under data or what what role can yeah. family and friends play? Yeah, I think that's in that's in the second that's in the second one. I mean, I think I really like like part of I think that's in this fact finding. I I really I you know in some ways the the in the in the middle there. I think what I'm trying to articulate is the distinction between getting information and then making the decision. And that there's actually a lot of information getting. There's like, there's the, the kind of thinking about your own life, but then there's asking other people. There's like collecting information. And the, and the key is really to try, like, in some ways to try, like, emotionally to turn off the decision making while you're getting the information. So rather than talking to your sister and having her be like, oh, yeah, you should definitely do it, and then be like, okay, we're going to do it, and then talking to your mom and having her be like, absolutely not, terrible idea, okay, we're not going to do it. Just like collect that information without making the decision in each moment and then later be like, okay, who do we trust? You know, it's our sister or your mom. Yeah. Um, the thing that I like about the framework also is this: that decision-making really is its own section. I think we, for, we forget to make the decision sometimes, right? Yeah, and I think, or I think we we remember to make the decision uh, constantly, right? So, so people will tell me, like, you know, when I think about these problems, I like just am, I'm thinking about them all the time, and every time a new piece of information comes in, I'm like making the decision again, and you, it just takes all of your time. And and one of the things I say in the book is like, you know, you want to give this these kinds of decisions. You want to give them the, the time that they deserve because you know they they they're important, but you don't want to give them all the time. Uh, and that's I think that's that is important to note. Did you ever read this? Uh, I think it was in an article in the Atlantic like ten years ago about how Obama stopped making decisions while he was president. How he was like, I'm not going to think about what I eat. I'm not going to think about what I wear anymore. I will. I'm saving all my energy for the most important decisions because. I have to make the decisions that a hundred people could not make. They only get to my desk when I have to make them. So he's like, I'm, I'm, and it's been used in all this business literature also. Cause it's like, how do you only focus on the right decision at the right time? I hadn't read that, but I think it's, it is interesting. And it, it relates for me to sort of the, the, this idea of like decision fatigue, that if you're having to make every decision, like constantly make important decisions all the time, uh, that is that is fatiguing, and so so there's kind of a value to yeah isolating the sets of decisions that are important or setting up some framework so some decisions like what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear or whatever it is are kind of like almost made for you. And so what what does that decision making look like in your house if you don't mind sharing? Like is it a sort of a, you all sit on the floor and you know you you sort of like okay it's a decision time or. Uh, you know, we've 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 come together today to make a decision. Yeah, yeah? More, more like the second thing. <laughs> I mean, I think you know we we've spent a lot of time, not perhaps surprisingly, if you read the book, like thinking about um, the decisions that that we that we don't have to make, or or sort of setting up various kinds of scaffolding. So a lot of kind of day to day decisions are just sort of made automatically. But then there, when there are big decisions like you know summer camp, which probably was on my mind because we just made this decision about next summer. Um, yeah, well, like we like sat down with the the relevant kid and just you know kind of looked each other in the eye and we're like, okay, you know, you did this last summer. Like, is there anything we want to change? Do we want to do it again? Um, and you know, just you know, making sure that 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 kind of we had a, a moment to sit and reflect and you know do this in a in a group. Um, I had was I was forced to send a meeting invite to yeah. every, to both my husband and my daughter, but she didn't respond to it. But she came <laughs> to the meeting anyway. <laughs> 
<laughs> sounds like my work. That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds good. It's like, yeah, people just show up. He's like, why didn't you RSVP? We need to know how many people to order lunch for. Exactly. <laughs> like, um, there's another important part of the book, which is not about the four Fs, which is you call the big picture. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. So the the idea there is that um, to to encourage people to think about what they want their day to look like um, and what they kind of what is the what are the most important pieces of their kind of life to them um, and uh, and to discuss that explicitly if with their partner if they are partnering with if they are parenting along with somebody uh, with somebody else um, and so there are, there are pieces that are suggesting that people like you know write down like what are the three things that are the most uh, that you really you know you really want to do every day and what are the what are the three things that um, you know you you really value in your in your kid and and a lot of it is just sort of versions of an exercise to say like can you say can you say what's most important to you and can you share that out with with other people so you can have an explicit conversation about what are the things we're gonna we're gonna prioritize? Um, because part of what happens, at least I think for many people in this kind of as the logistics of parenting older kids gets more and more extreme, is that we end up just doing a lot of things and saying yes to a lot of things and and having things sort of build up without recognizing the the cost to them without recognizing what we're not doing when we do each when we say yes to each individual thing. And so in some ways this is a this is a way to step back and ask, you know, what do you want that what do you want the day to look like? And sometimes that's gonna mean you have to say nay no to more stuff or prioritize some things over over other things. But unless we have a, a holistic view, a, a big picture view of this, it's hard to see the forest for the trees, I guess. You know, writing a mission statement as a company is a huge deal. I guess my concern is that people will hear about this and think that it's too hard, like it's too stressful. It, it you know, adding meetings to family life uh, is also stressful or something instead of um, just going with the flow. What do you tell those people? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I have like sort of two two messages um, there. You know, one is that I think actually a lot of the work that is inherent in this, you are already doing. You're just doing it kind of haphazardly and not all at once. So there's a little bit of kind of like moving things to to sort of do them all together rather than doing them piecemeal in moments that are not convenient. Um, but I think the other thing I'll tell people is like, yeah, I get it. Like, you know, I, I like, I get that like you do not want to spend three weeks like investing like in organizing your life like this. And I don't think it would take that long, but I, I do, I do kind of see and, and we only got to sort of where we are after many years of kind of adding little pieces of this. And I think that's really the message I would have is like, hey, even if you, you know, you don't want to like adopt this thing wholesale. There are pieces of this you could do, sort of pieces like ways that you could add deliberateness uh, to what you're to what you're doing that I think would improve the people's functioning, people's lives, even in fairly small ways. So I'll give you an example. Somebody told me, like, I read your book. We did one thing, which is we sat down. The uh, we sat down, decided to sit down at the beginning of the week and plan who was going to pick our kid up from daycare every day rather than arguing about it every morning. We made a plan one moment and then, and that has really improved our lives. And that's a short, that's like a tiny thing, but you sort of recognize there are these moments where like every day we're arguing, like who's going to do this? And we could just take a minute when in a cold state 
in not like not a moment that we're angry or busy or whatever, and just be like, okay, let's make a plan, and then we can follow through on follow through on the plan. And I think that some of what I would tell people is just you know try if like pick a couple of things that you think might work, a couple of pain points, and and see if uh, being a little more deliberate about your plans would actually help with that. Yeah, I would tell them. Uh, do it and then you'll save a bunch of money on couples therapy in a couple of years. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's a huge piece of this. My my husband read this and he was like, this is like a book about like how to not fight with your partner. Like, this is not about parenting. It's <laughs> like, okay, that's like fair right. enough. But I think it's true. I mean, I think that like so much of our conflict is about um, is this sort of like result of having not said the things that are important and then expecting the other person to know what you think is important because they're your partner. Yeah. But actually, they don't know that. What if What if you have a partner that doesn't buy into the idea of spending time on aligning on the big picture? Um, and that's, you know, complicated. Um, you know, I think, again, I would say, like, maybe there is, like, sort of things around the, you know, things around the edges where um, where you could improve even if you can't get your partner to sit down and, like, write a, write a mission statement with you. But even, you know, thinking about some of these bigger pieces and, like, what do we want to be doing at the end of the day? What do we want to do at the beginning of the day? That maybe there's some scope for for aligning there, um, but I think it is. You know, it's, it's, there's people have said a sort of version of this to me, which is like, well, I would never want to do this with my partner because we wouldn't agree, and so I don't. You know, this like if I do this, I'm just going to find out that we disagree, and I think there, the answer I'd give is like, you're going to find out if you disagree anyway. Like, you're not avoiding that conflict; you're just pushing it off to a different um, to a different time. Yeah. In fact, didn't you write a newsletter that said something like why partners should seek more conflict with each other? Surface, yeah. Surface your conflict now because then you can like not fight about it yeah. later. And do you think is, is the be- is some kind of big picture exercise the best way to do that, or how do you start that conversation? I think that some kind of exercise like that, but it, you know, it almost could be more practical. So some of the big picture stuff is like write down your values, and I think that. That for some people that's really, really helpful. And for some people, it's like, I don't want to waste my time writing down my values. Like that seems like a bunch of like gobbledygook. So there, there's a part of this that's about like, okay, just put aside your values. Just write down like what are the three things that you want to be doing every day? Like just like three things that are important to you to have happen in your day. Um, and that is something that's a little more concrete that I think people can sometimes grab onto. And if you find out that, that the, you know, your things are really in conflict with each other, that's a place to start a discussion. So I think in some ways, many of these things are just get something down on paper that you can use as a starting point. And those things would be like, we have dinner together or I'm home for bedtime or... Exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, I go to work or like it's important to me to go running or like, you know, it doesn't have to be even things with the family. It'd be like personal stuff. Like, you know, it's very important to me to have... I mean, for me personally, like going running is very important. I prioritize that. Okay, I have that's cool. I wanted to talk a little bit more about tips, some like practical stuff. Um, I'm curious, what muscle do you think parents should try and develop? Like, what do you wish that parents were better at? I mean, I think one issue many of us have, maybe not all, um, is the kind of a, attempt to make my kid into me or to to value in my kid the things that I either I am good at. Or the things I wish I were good at, right? And so I think there's a version of like, you know, your kid is not the conduit for your unfulfilled dreams, um, which is sort of one issue. But then I think the other issue is just, you know, like it's it's very easy to see the things that you are, that you feel that you're good at and to sort of see them in your kid and see when they're good at them, when they're not good at them. 
but it may be harder to see the the things that your kid is is good at that you're not good at, but those are kind of the the things we want to celebrate. So being able to step back and and kind of work on the muscle of like what's my kid good at here? Like what's going to help them excel and whatever is their is their way? I think that's I think we're not using that muscle enough. Yeah. Do you wish that parents could have some kind of cheat code? Like up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, B, A, star for unlimited lives. Exactly. Unlimited parenting lives. Yes. But what would um, it be? Like, what would the cheat code be for, for parents? I don't, what was I don't that? know. Like, was that Mortal Kombat? That's like, that's like the way you get when I was, this is like I'm totally dating myself, but like that was like how you got like unlimited lives in like Mario or something. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, but what kind of cheat code? If you could be a, be a, up, up, down, whatever, your husband or yourself, um, or all oh parents, it like, would what just, do you wish? I think it would just be to, like, to not get mad. Um, and maybe that's, like, reflecting the age of my kids or something about my kids. But, like, they're so – it is so easy with kids who are kind of, like, I think in this sort of, like, 4 to 15 – this, like, range of kids where, like, they're not adults, but they they seem like – they seem like they're being a jerk, you know, where it's sort of like the recognition that like, yes, my kid is acting like a jerk, but it's not like when the adults act like a jerk. It's like, you know, they're just like not fully formed in this way. Uh, and that I think is really um, that like I, I struggle with that all the time. If I had a, like a, a like a cheat code for just like dial this down, I would use it a lot. Um. I like total responsibility transfer a lot. Me too. And what is it, first of all? And then maybe we can go over like a couple ways to address a specific situation. Yeah. Okay. So the, the idea behind the total responsibility transfer is that there is a distinction between helping somebody with a task and taking charge of the task. The example I always like to think of is around meal prep. So there's a version of, you know, I cook dinner where you take the pot and put the water in and put the pasta in and drain it and, you know, put it on the table and then you've like cooked dinner. But actually that's not like being in charge of dinner because being in charge of dinner is thinking about what you're going to have for dinner and uh, purchasing the items that you need for dinner and then doing all of the other things about dinner and then making sure that like you have the things that you need. Like, and, and if I said like, I'm putting you in charge of dinner. I am res- transferring responsibility to you about dinner. That should mean like you are doing all the things about about the dinner. And I think part of why this is important is, you know, we kind of people can feel like, oh, well, I made dinner. It's like, well, no, I had to think about dinner the whole time. All you did, like you did some tasks. You know, it's the difference between being the chef and being the sous chef in that example. And I think that that when we try to share share work in our um, in our household, there's a lot of value to sort of trying to share it in this kind of like really sharing responsibility. I think that's hard for both the person who is being shared with and for the sharer, which I always think about like it's hard for me to transfer responsibility to people because they're not doing it like I would do it, you know? And I think that's that's uh, that's the difference between like having someone help you and having someone do it is that they're not always going to do it exactly like you exactly like you want. And with kids, if you're going to give them responsibility, then you have to really give them responsibility. So, so for example, my kids have responsibility for like making their own breakfast. Um, that's like you know one of their things, and they really don't do it like I want them to. It's not because they're very slow. 
And, you know, like this morning, my daughter like took a really long time to come downstairs and then she cut like two enormous pieces of challah. There was no conceivable way she was going to be able to either eat all of that or to, and certainly not to eat it all in the time that it was allotted. And also like, that's not a breakfast, with a lot of protein. Like, I don't really think that's a great breakfast, but you know, I told her, I've already said, it's your job to like do your breakfast. And then I can't, like, I can't talk. And I'm, we're constantly having this thing where my husband is like, you're not supposed to be talking. <laughs> And then, you know, she didn't really eat it all. And she was like, oh, I'm really hungry. Like, that wasn't a good, good breakfast. And I was like, yeah, all right. Well, tomorrow maybe I'll pick something else. Yeah. And so you – because you can't be like, all right, come on. I'll make you an egg real quick. And here – actually, I've I've packed this emergency, you know, avocado toast perfectly packed already that you can take on the way out the door. Uh, I've saved exactly. you yet again. I am the superhero here. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, yeah, she went to school and she, like, hadn't had that much breakfast. Like, it's going to be totally fine. Um, but – that's hard. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, anyone with a roommate has gone through this to some, you know, it's like, whatever. Dave was supposed to clean the bathroom and Dave didn't clean the bathroom. Now I have to, you know, but at some point we have to do that with our kids if we want them to actually be able to do anything on their own. Yeah. It's a little bit of a discussion in the book. I think more people have talked about this elsewhere that like there's value to trying to instill that the kind of independence that comes with this when they're young and the stakes are lower. And, you know, it's hard to... In, to sort of start in with like you should cook your own breakfast when your kid is like 16 because, you know, the, it, like it seems like high stakes and if they don't eat, eat, eat their breakfast and then they do badly on the math test, like maybe that really matters in a way that, it, you know, it doesn't when they're when they're 10. and But of course, if you haven't instilled it at 16, then they're like off at college and they're calling you like, where do I find the dining hall? And, right. you know. Right. We're coming to the end. I have a couple, I have two questions that we ask everybody. One is, is there anything that you found is actually much simpler than people think? I think there are a lot of things where, like, more things are fine than people think. So, you know, everybody's, like, obsessed with screen time and the idea, like, if is there, like, small amounts of screen time are bad and, like, that's just, like, not true and, and sort of similarly, like, is there a specific diet that's, like, the most important? No. It was just, like, a lot of places there where where I think the, the data lets you off the hook a little bit. Um, but I feel like nothing is simple about parenting older kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, but dude, I think that's like to take the air out, right? I mean, what's great about your book is to be like, hold on, take a second. We're not going to rush into this and we're going to look at it from all the angles and Yeah, and you're doing probably okay. doing fine. Yeah. And the, and the last thing I wanted to ask was, was what are you reading? you have any, any books you want to recommend? I really like sort of like, like nonfiction. So I'm right in the middle of a book about um, the, the Rosetta Stone, which is called like the language of the gods or something and it's about the like race to to translate the to to sort of figure out the the hieroglyphs based on the Rosetta Stone it's good nice well I think that pretty much takes us to the end this is this is great this is super fun cool welcome to the bookend where we end with books Oh, it's been so long since I've heard you say that. <laughs> yeah? Does yeah. It, really, it really makes a difference, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. My <laughs> my nostalgia has been activated. It's it's, uh, it's nice. Awesome. So that was a great interview. It was really nice to hear you do your thing. Um, and it was great to hear from, from Emily Oster. Yeah, um, it was an honor. She's definitely in the zeitgeist, one of the one of the people with some of the most important takes and mm. approaches and helpful helpful frameworks. During COVID also, she was really helpful for parents, and her newsletters 
definitely helped me and and just like started nice conversations between me and my sister for example yeah yeah so i think it's a it, it was it's really great really great that that we could have that time with her yeah we were very lucky people um so now that you've had a chance to hear it again because as we said at the beginning, I think it's been a little while since you did this interview. Did anything new stick out to you or anything else that you maybe you didn't realize had stayed with you over time and you've just been kind of enacting? Um, I mean, like we talked a little bit before the interview, the structures are important. I mean, I definitely like the um, idea of the cheat code, but also, mm-hmm. that was but funny. also just her, her approach to like, you don't have to do every single part of this, you know? Um, I think... One thing, I mean, this is not something necessarily we talked about, um, her and I, but I think what it made clear to me is that a lot of people have structures and have frameworks. They just don't formalize them necessarily in their relationships, in their lives, in their personal lives, outside of work, in their parenting. A lot of people do things that are smart and that they don't give each other, (laughs) they don't give themselves enough credit for. Like a lot of people say, oh, I don't use any of this parenting stuff i don't read parenting books i don't do parenting frameworks but like you know once a month my wife and i go out on saturday night and we talk about how it's going with the kids and we talk about if we need to change anything in our setup you know and it's like yeah that's that you know Mm -hmm. and that's great don't Mm -hmm. don't call it a framework you know you're doing your thing everybody's trying to find their own way through um all the challenges all the questions yeah and that's something that stood out from this interview is just the how broad you can go, how much you can do without the pressure of necessarily having to do everything um, in an organized way. You can just do some things in an organized way and that's enough and that'll be helpful. Yeah, like that idea of just start somewhere, start small, start somewhere, do something that will give you this feeling of, I have an overview of what I'm trying to accomplish here in my family or in my relationship or whatever. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. What about you? Um, I liked this moment of when she talked about the decision to do summer school or not. And she kind of described the framework that she has, the the four Fs, I think, as it's like an opportunity to take a step back and give yourself a little bit of space between that gut reaction that you might naturally have to whatever the problem on the table is like, Ooh, I don't want my kid to go to summer school. That's four weeks away. No way. And instead of that, you have, if you have a framework that you're using, it serves as a reminder to like, okay, back off for one second, cool off, gather some data, make a decision, consult the stakeholders, which is something (laughs) that we would totally do in, you know, in the office, but not necessarily consider our kid a stakeholder. Um, But so many of the Simplify episodes over the years, whether it's been about microdosing or about mindfulness or actually like a bunch of other episodes, there's so much value in this this moment of pause between Hmm. taking in whatever the information is and reacting. And this is just another sort of moment of dignifying the pause, the space between receiving the information, reacting to the information. And that's what a framework can give us in a lot of ways. Um, so what do you think? Should we do some books? Yeah, let's do books. I mean, maybe related to that because I, um, related to intention, there's, we did an interview. I mean, I, 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 I'm joking about being typecast as the simplified dad, but I did an interview with, um, Tina Payne Bryson, who's one of my favorite parenting authors. Yeah. She wrote a bunch of books with Dan Siegel. And one of the best books that they did, uh, is called No Drama Discipline. Mm. 
And the title of our episode with her was, um, what was it? The, what the kid needs, what your kid needs most is you. Yeah. And um, when you when we talk about intention and that pause and like being deliberate and conscientious, uh, there's in Tina Payne Bryson's world, there's this idea that discipline is not punishing; discipline is teaching. And so our job as parents is to discipline, is to show, to guide. And this is especially once kids get a bit older um, and you it's not about like how I'm going to keep this being alive. It's much more about like what kind of person do I want my kids to be and how do I guide them? Because they become their own people, you know? Yeah. Um, and when uh, Emily Oster in our talk talked about breakfast and talked about, look, she wants her kids to make breakfast. And if that means that breakfast is going to not be the right breakfast sometimes she's not going to step in and right she's not going to punish and she's not going to step in and save the day she's going to teach she's going to give the tools um and this is for example something that people might do better at work might do better in like a leadership position or might do better with friends where they're like i'm not going to help all my friends problems yeah and yet with your kids you're like i have to do everything i have to be everything for them i have to fix them i have to you know strongly teach them what's right and wrong and everything um yeah so i want to recommend that book again and that interview if you haven't heard it yet with tina payne bryson uh and the book no drama discipline yeah what about you um my recommendation we're talking about processes right and how having a framework sometimes is really really useful not always you don't always need a framework but sometimes you really do at least to get you started so the book i'm recommending is called personal kanban it's by jim benson and tony and demaria berry um personal kanban is just a system to get your goals met basically you can you dump out everything that you need to get done um you decide what steps you need to take in order to get that task done you break it into small pieces sounds a lot like david allen's method also another episode of this podcast is with david allen getting things done um indeed so many plugs today uh but personal kanban is cool it's a very lightweight sort of personal project management system that you can use to get yourself started i find myself falling back on it sometimes when i have a lot of uh unsavory personal life admin tasks to get done like you know seeing the orthopedist and filing my taxes and stuff that i really don't want to do it's useful for me to have a system where i record everything and then i can watch myself make progress so again that is personal kanban you can find it on Blinkist or anywhere fine books are sold. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, that's obviously from, that's the big takeaway for me with parenting and the family firm and everything. Like it's, I have my own way of doing it, but knowing that I can reach into the structure, like, you know, reach into a bag of tricks and say, okay, I need this. I'm a bit stuck. I'm a bit overwhelmed. Um, You know, my inner critic is especially loud today. Then let me, you know, lean, lean on the stuff that works for other people and just get started. And then I'll, and then I'll, and then I'll be back in the groove and I'll keep yeah, going. Yeah, exactly. Cool. That's what I hope people got out of today. Me too. All right, then that's it. Let's wrap it up. Simplify is produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Ben Schumann-Stoller, Adi Constantino, uh, here at Plinkist in Berlin, Germany. Um, If you would like to take our survey, we would like that a lot. It is in the show notes. Please go do it. We would love to hear from you. You've got a couple more weeks to do it. Uh, Maybe literally a couple more weeks, like two more max. So please go fill it out. Um, You can find all of the books that we've recommended today on the Plinkist app which will give you the key ideas from um, great nonfiction books. You can try it free for seven days. Just go sign up. And 
I think that's it. Ben, anything to add? No, just thanks again for filling out the survey. Give us a couple weeks, after which we will come back with a regular cadence again. We will, we promise we will set to one day. We'll publish on the same day at however often, every week or every other week or something. Yeah. Um, right? And and I know because we used to be like Thursday people, but then we did a Friday. And we need to like, we're going to look in the mirror and decide who are we? Are we Thursday <laughs> people? Are we Monday people? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we're just gonna we're gonna that's how we're gonna build this thing back up um, yeah. and, and I'm really looking forward to like re-engaging with all the with all the listeners and with everybody again because the survey really I don't know it showed that people care people are yeah. out there yeah. and, and they want more of this so we, we, we feel this responsibility to like deliver on that and make more um, and get people the good stuff yeah yeah exactly it's been so nice to hear from you and to know that this matters to you and that the work that we do helps you that's all that really matters to me so thanks plus one yeah all right checking out see ya